Welcome to Postscript, the subtext after show, where we talk about things related and unrelated to this week's episode. Just got done talking about Die Hard. We're not really done, but we were almost done talking about Die Hard. We're going to talk a little about it a little bit more here. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I got a little bit, you know, I, I'm watching this movie. I some, you know, I watch it through your eyes a little bit and think, oh yeah, Aaron doesn't like that. <laughs> oh, what parts? There's the obligatory 1980s nudity, which somehow we moved beyond thankfully i i think there was a time when the nude sex scene thing there always had to be something in, in any given 80s movie i think they thought it was you know, well we can do this now so we have to this marks it as something for adults <laughs> right and people gave up on that as far as i can tell and, and what is more adult but boobs it's always boobs right exactly and just just a flash of the boobs and then you're done you did your you did your due diligence. Maybe they gave up on that for cynical reasons, like getting a PG-13 rating or something, or a PG rating. I don't know. But then there's the violence, you know, and which I know you don't necessarily enjoy. I guess it's not too terrible in this movie. Well, I really hate the, the Mr. Chikagi's. That's like really bloody because it's uh, splayed on the window behind him, all that blood and everything. And it's also a very cruel moment. Yeah. The way it's done. When you see a bad guy get waxed, as McLean puts it, does that you feel good about that the way I do? Do I feel good about it? No. <laughs> no, not personally. You know, I guess when you're killing henchmen, you can't really feel good about that. It's just more they're in the way. But, you know, I, and, and when Gruber gets his comeuppance at the end, which is a great, awesome scene where, you know, another bit of film trivia is that they, they had Alan Rickman do that stunt himself, falling from mm. the building. Oh yeah, I know. I know about that. Someone told yeah. me. Yeah, and then they yeah. did the one, two, three thing, but they didn't get to the end of the count and let him go yep. before, so that he would genuinely look surprised. <laughs> and then they also had they invented this automated focus system because it was impossible to keep the focus on him as he fell. They wanted the focus, his face, to be the the focus as he moved away from the camera, and it would happen too quickly to manually adjust it. So they invented some automated system which only worked partially so you only get a little bit of that fall from that angle before it cuts away is that scene like a yeah moment the bad guy (laughs) the bad guy is dead no not really it's cool though i mean i think that's like someone maybe on facebook or something pointed out that i'm inconsistent with my hatred of violence because i did mention not that they were like it was a gotcha moment but they thought it was interesting that i talked about how godfather one is better than part two because the deaths in part one are so much better. Mm-hmm. And it is true that I do, if it's an interesting and inventive kind of death, then maybe I appreciate the artistry of that. So you can appreciate the aesthetics of violence. Yeah, right. <laughs> you must love Tarantino. I'm just kidding. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, that's terrible aesthetics. It's like cartoon violence. Not that I've ever look, fully looked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Well, because that's the thing. Like, I've only ever half seen a lot of this stuff. So if it's like a cool thing and then I can sort of like peek at it, then mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to me. But I think like the Alan Rickman falling, that shot is really cool. But the idea of falling off a building is like the worst thing ever. I think my problem is I have so much empathy for anyone getting killed on film Like maybe it's actually, and I don't mean to compliment myself. I mean, maybe this is like a selfish thing actually that I just imagine myself getting killed in that way. (laughs) Mm. And then I think that it would be terrible, 
to mm-hmm. have that happen. So yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Otherwise, except that I think that's an awesome shot, and I I love that his, the look on his face and as he falls. Um, yeah. I think the the funniest part though is the guy hanging from the chain who comes back out at the end so that Powell I mean, can shoot somebody. So ridiculous. <laughs> it's so funny. He looks so crazed. He looks like a deranged He-Man after his head has been like after somebody's sister has tried to give the He-Man doll a perm or or, or done something crazy <laughs> with the hair and he comes out and is oh gosh, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's such a Hollywood screenwriter thing to do as well, right? There's like we got a complete Powell's arc. We got a you know, we got to have the story about the kid he killed pay off, you know, right? and have him get over his, you know, his hang up. But because the movie is a satire, like just, just in the same way that all the other caricature and silly stuff that happens is, it is that, it is what it is. It, it still, as far as I'm concerned, works within the context of a satire. So you, you get away with a lot once you enter that realm. And I think action movies work very well in that realm. I mean, that's, it's kind of the way James Bond movies, I think, used to function. Not so much anymore, but and early on, almost a little like, yeah, even more, not just set satire, but very goofy, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I think um, Star Wars is that, functions that way. Indiana Jones, anything with uh, true, Harrison yeah. Ford as, a, as an action star. Yeah. My one true love. Well, it's it, it's it's funny too, because right before that, you get the embrace between Powell and McLean, and you can't help comparing his reunion with Holly, which is very passionate. There's that kiss, right? But with his meeting of Powell, which is for the first time, but, you know, in person. It's, but it's it's powerful in a way. And it, inevitably, it's, it, <laughs> I think in a way, it's more powerful than, than the reunion with Holly, it, just because we don't see their relationship during the film, really, right? Right. That's one of the interesting things about the film is there's just no real development of their relationship because they're apart. Their, their relationship takes on the form, a very primal form, which is just me, man, going to protect wife. You know, that's it. I don't know. I, I do think that there's something interesting about the fact that she's hiding the marriage because she's hiding the marriage to begin with, or rather she's cast it off, right, by, being, uh, by going by her, her maiden name. And then there's something interesting and sort of like a communication through silence or subversion or like, uh, you know, she is trying to protect him throughout the whole film by making sure yeah. that nobody knows that he's her husband or wh- what his real identity is. And it goes by Roy, right, for Roy Rogers. But I, I do think that there's a, an interesting kind of communication in that because it takes what she was doing, which is casting off the marriage and makes the divorce into a plot to sort of keep the marriage together. Or to keep him alive, anyway. Right. I think that yeah, that's an interesting point. It's a it's kind of like a comedy of remarriage plot, like a like a screwball comedy right. plot where the the maiden name becomes the protective mantle for the husband and for her, right? Because he's trying to do the same thing too, make sure that she's not implicated in in him causing trouble for the pseudo terrorists, so that she will not be singled out. She's very well characterized. She's she's kind of the perfect hybrid of mother and career woman right because she's Mm. authoritative but not too harsh right they just they try to hit that that mark and do it perfectly and she's protective and she's intelligent and so she's well characterized during the movie and i was thinking well they they don't really communicate with each other there's no relationship dynamics it's not like a typical movie where they'd be interacting with each other through the movie but 
Yeah, what you've said about communication is very interesting because by virtue of he's altering his envi- the environment in which he's functioning and moving, right? She's affecting the events. He's, she's affecting what's going to happen to him by protecting to him. So there is a, you could call that a... Um, at some very primal level, that's the communication. Right. Yeah, she's changing the terms of their separation so that what was divorcing them, literally, is now uniting them in a, a shared effort to protect each other's you know, identities mutually. Well, I was just thinking of this word cooperating. Like, like they mm-hmm. are, um, they're actually engaged in a cooperative endeavor, interestingly enough, without direct interaction. So they can, and, and, and of course, that is what marriage is all about, right? If it's going to be yeah. successful, it's it's a cooperative endeavor to accomplish something. It's not just you know you call it a relationship, but it's not just hey we're we're living together, or have kids together, or even that we love each other. It's an activity one might want to say of preser- of preservation. So this idea of mutual preservation is resolves, I think, like the issue of career preservation or or however you want to cast that conflict from the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. So I think that his relationship with Powell also serves as, I don't know what happens in s- subsequent films as far as his relationship to L.A., if he then, if L.A. then becomes his home base or whatever. But I'm assuming that also the idea of his involvement in a friendship with another family man in the area and also having a like-minded person in the LAPD is supposed to be a kind of an entree for him to feel at home in L.A. I mean, there's nothing like subverting a terrorist plot to feel at home in L.A., but there's also the, you know, needing a friend and someone, a like-minded person who's also engaged in the life of the family to be a support system. And so he also gets that over the course of, you know, he gets like Mm -hmm. two, two relationships for the price of one by the end of the film. Yeah, we need that male bonding for him to be the family man and, and someone with heart, we mm-hmm. need something like that because again, he's otherwise he's alone through the most of the the film. But again, that's one of the things that makes his you know his meeting Powell in a way more <laughs> emotionally compelling than his reunion with with Holly. Well, I think it's really romantic though. That yeah. like it surprised yeah. me how not not Powell. <laughs> so, oh, I'm sorry, that's what I thought you were saying. Okay. No, no, right. no. It surprised me at the end of the film when he gets in the back of the limo with her, and it just I think because of the rapidity with which everything wraps up, um, that that hearing that song, the Christmas song at the end, uh, "Let It Snow," when they when they get mm-hmm. in the back of the car is like very emotionally satisfying. I kept wishing that someone would put him on a freaking stretcher since he's still walking on mm-hmm. his cut up feet. But when he gets into the car, the two of them together, I think it's, yeah, I, I find that to be just as satisfying as, as, as much as I love Reginald Paul Johnson. I think it's just as satisfying the romantic uh, thread wrap up. Well, for me at that moment, it feels like the end of an allegory about a marital spat. Right. Mm-hmm. Where <laughs> uh, we've had a knockdown, drag out fight. Both of us are really cut up from it, <laughs> cut up, exhausted <laughs> from it. But we've made up, and now we are just going to uh, walk away like nothing has happened. La di da di da, and everyone else is there cleaning up the mess. I don't know. Heads are bloody but unbowed. Yeah. There's something about the way, you know the way they leave the, and again, this is part of the comedic and satirical element of this, right? There, it's not oh, I'm traumatized, let me sit with my special shiny thing, blanket that they put over <laughs> trauma victims, right? And mm-hmm. this might as well not have happened. Do you know what I mean exactly? It's it, like the substance, I guess the thematic element of the film takes over. This really all along was about them making up 
and the scene that they're leaving behind, it, you know, it might as well almost be as if they had just made that movie together. You step outside the frame a little bit. Right. You know, this is part of the comedy of remarriage, too. I mean, like I think of, you know, for instance, The Awful Truth in which there's like a total demolition of their cultural standing in the community. Mm. You know, like Irene Dunn comes in and just like destroys Cary Grant's reputation in front of these very high class people and pretends to be his sister. And right. So there's all this like crazy stuff that happens. But in the end, it's like none of it happened. None of it mattered. The point was just getting back together through whatever means necessary, whether it's, you know, pretending to be your husband's sister and, and, and making a fool of yourself at a party or, subverting a terrorist plot. It's all like coming out of the same unreal displacement of marital dysfunction in antics or whether those be like action movie antics or comedic antics. Yeah, I think that's very good. And it, you know, I'm I'm thinking now that it speaks to the prioritization of that relationship over social concerns. So society be damned. This is the this is the fundamental unit. This the family unit unit or the romantic unit, and the integrity of that unit is everything. And if it costs a uh, skyscraper, you know, if you have to destroy a skyscraper and if you have to endure a hostage crisis and quasi terroristic incident and all that stuff in order to preserve it, then so be it. Right. It is of ultimate value. I think that's what. You're helping me understand that feeling that I get at the very end of the movie. And I think that's why this is all part of uh, McLean's realization about how bi-coastal culture clashes be damned, that ultimately the marriage and the children are the most important thing. Right. Yeah. So it's very, very satisfying for me. I, I was recently started watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Not uh, recently. Okay. I guess I, I watched it with my mom while she was recuperating over the summer. And uh, there's a very sweet relationship at the heart of that show and i think if i'm remembering correctly that it's weird how much of a fog this this past summer already is for me mm. the andy samberg character and his girlfriend dress up for halloween as john mcclain and holly and she has like the pink jacket suit and the the big perm <laughs> it's really cute like it's a it's actually a really great couples costume i know it's after halloween now we're talking about christmas but it's it would be a great couples costume for people out there in the future if they're interested like the guy just has to wear a torn up wife beater and you just have to find like a like a skirt, a black skirt and some ugly, you know, 80s pink thing at the thrift store and a perm and you got <laughs> um, a wig or curl your hair. But we didn't get to the the classic perms in movie history. Can we think of bad perms? Oh, I could think of one. Just one. <laughs> what are you thinking of? I'm thinking of Annie. <laughs> oh, really? Interesting. Right. That's like the worst hairstyle in movie history, I think. Is that a perm that she has? Oh, Yeah. It's got to be. It's not. It's got to be a wig, but a perm wig. Do people still get perms? Is that, or is that just, just the 80s is a perm, something women do? I think they do, but I th- maybe, but maybe they've gotten better now that they're more natural. Maybe not. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what women do. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked this up and uh, the first one that came up was uh, Greece. Olivia Newton, John in Greece. Oh, but that's a good perm. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's actually not. I can see that in my mind's eye, and that's that's not a bad perm. It's it's good. Oh, oh, doesn't Mel Gibson have 
have a terrible perm in uh, Lethal Weapon? Well, he has like a mullet, but isn't the top of it permed? Or am I thinking of Dog the Bounty Hunter? <laughs> yeah, is it tall? Is, does he have a tall? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh-huh. It's pretty big. It's big hair. <laughs> you know, Mel Gibson can have his bad Lethal Weapon hair, and he's still Mel Gibson. But I think that the... And, and Annie, you know, the perm is part of the whole thing. But Holly her attractiveness is significantly diminished mm. by the perm. So I think that is the worst. That perm is the real villain of the film because <laughs> <laughs> it takes a very attractive woman and really downgrades her. Like that's, that's several points lower than she should be. It should have ended with her sweating off the perm, you know, somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like with her hair wet and <laughs> Yeah, straight. if she had gone in the, in the water, in the Frank Lloyd Wright waterfall, then <laughs> right. they would have undone the perm. And gotten her own wife beater and gone all Ripley on us. There you go. <laughs> Everybody should just be Sigourney Weaver by the end of the movie. Any action movie. <laughs> yep. All right. Should we leave it there? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you.